Welcome, I'm Ruth Feringa, founder of Conscious Leaders. This podcast is about providing you with disruptive insights from human leaders. They're progressive leaders, but they're also human beings, and they're willing to talk about the highs and lows of business, so you can take away both their philosophy, as well as how it plays out practically day to day, what really happens. Learn about the podcast and us at consciousleaders.org.uk. Now introducing you to CEO of baby food brand Ella's Kitchen. He's called Mark Cudigan, and Mark has a compelling message about purpose, about autonomy, and also his own journey with well-being, following a tragedy he experienced. I started by asking him just how he got to where he is now. Went to university, uh, what I got what my brother would call a rather average degree from a rather average university, but I won't tell you which, because <laughs> I don't want to offend anyone who went to that university. Um, and then I left university, I qualified as a professional tennis coach, um, and I was also doing some DJing in the UK and around the world. Um, and so I did that for a bit, teaching kids, and then I was looking around for something to do, and I sort of fell into a nuts and snacks business, so think, think things like cashews, peanuts, pistachios, that sort of thing. I did that for 15 years and, and built that company up uh, with two other people and I was I became a minority shareholder. And then we sold that company to a PLC. I then went and bought a granola cereal company, um, built that up over a year and sold that. And then I kind of fell into and fell in love with baby food, which sounds a bit strange, but I, I had a our first child at the time, um, and I met Paul Lindley, um, who was the founder of Ella's Kitchen. And that's, I guess, a moment which really changed my life, um, because it was the first time I really understood this whole um, uh, ethos, I suppose, around uh, mission-driven businesses, and that the very purpose of business doesn't have to just be about making money. Mm. So tell me what it what it does mean a mission mission driven business. What does that mean to you? Uh, so a mission driven business means a company that has a, which is trying to solve a societal problem or an environmental problem, um, and that is the very reason why the business exists. So it's not to say so. Our mission is to improve children's lives through developing healthy relationships with food. So it's all around health and nutrition everything that we do is with that lens of our mission so we would never do anything that's against our mission and we do a huge amount of work and spend a huge amount of time and money uh, living and breathing our mission not selling products Mm. so it's it's outside of just the sort of commercial aspect i guess of selling products which i've been involved in all my life and i just didn't really realize that there was another way of running a business Mm. So the, there was a shift for you that maybe there was something else out there in work or where did yeah. it come along from? It, it, was a com- it was a completely different mindset. So it came from two things really. Um, one is just before I met Paul Lindley, I read about a story in the newspaper, in the UK newspapers, um, about work that uh, Microsoft was doing with the UNHCR. Um, UNHCR? So that United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Okay. Um, So if you think about it, if you are a refugee and you are fleeing a war-torn country, the first problems you face is food safety and security. 
believe it or not, closely after that is this loss of identity. So imagine if I put you somewhere on the planet, you have no identity, no passport, no wallet, no nothing at all. That loss of identity is a really, really powerful thing. Mm. Now, in 1999, 650,000 people left Bosnia over a long weekend, going into a camp of over a million. So they were faced with the problem of food safety, security, also this problem of loss of identity. And on top of that, you had families getting displaced from one another. So imagine your kids and, and, and you get displaced from your kids, you're going into a camp of over a million. How soon before you see your children? You may never see them again. And there's this story of three French Microsoft technicians having lunch in Paris and one turns to the other two and says, have you seen what's in Le Monde uh, about what's going on in Bosnia? And these other two are like, yeah. And he said, well, we're pretty good at this, aren't we? I mean, the UN, they need a program which is going to enable them to give people an instant identification and then to be able to track people. And this is before, you know, GPS and, and iPhones and everything. This is 1999. And the other two are like, right. And he said, well, this is what we do, isn't it? So he went to his boss and went to his boss. And believe it or not, it went all the way to the North American Microsoft board who said, fine, have a go. They sent 30 French technicians out to Bosnia. Within three months, they'd solved the problem. And they came up with this, they call it a field sales kit, but it, it was basically a briefcase. Um, and it gave the UN the ability to give people instant identification and track them so they could match families up together. Societal problem solved mm. within three months. Mm. Um, now I read about this and I thought, wow, there's not another company on the planet probably that could have achieved what Microsoft achieved in that time certainly not a government you know we all expect we've got cop 26 at the moment going on we all expect governments to solve all of these issues like why and who are these magical people that can solve these issues is it boris johnson in the uk is it the cabinet is it the tory party i mean who are these like magical mystical wonderful people that can solve all these problems they don't exist but they do exist in, inside of our companies and for me if we can turn our companies to society's benefit. I mean, look at the, the creativity, the professionalism, the technical knowledge that we have inside of our, our companies. If we can use that to society's benefit, the benefit to the company is obvious, right? I mean, imagine if you were one of those 30 people, what would you think about the work that you've done? Mm. You probably think this is, this is the pinnacle of my career. I'm never gonna do anything that's gonna positively impact people's lives as much as this. Mm. So is this, Talk to me about how this translates to you as a leader and as the CEO of Ella's Kitchen. It sounds like a really strong why, a really strong ethical drive for the work that you're doing. How does that affect the way you lead or the way you manage people? The way I, I, I view leadership and certainly leadership of uh, Ella's is it's an absolute privilege. It's an absolute honour um, to lead this company, to lead so many passionate and engaged people. Um, and that's how I take it through. And, and for me, leadership is, is about serving others. I've read this great quote from Simon Sinek's book, uh, Leaders Eat Last, which is, leaders would sooner sacrifice what is theirs to save what is ours, and they would never sacrifice what is ours to save what is theirs. And for me, that goes through everything about leadership. Leadership should not come with perks. It really should not come with your car parking space is closest to the building and everybody else is furthest away. Because mm -hmm. what does that say to everybody, that you're more important, that leadership comes with all of these things? It doesn't, mm -hmm. it's an absolute privilege and the reverse should be the, the, the case. And Simon Sinek actually got his 
the, the title for the book came from the British Army. Whereas if you go into an, a mess of the British Army, the leaders stand back and wait to be served last. Really? And if there isn't food for them, or you know, they don't have the variety, that's the way it is. Hmm. Because, and, and that's the whole sort of culture, I suppose, for me of leadership is you don't get the perks, you don't get to go first, you don't get the food. No, you hold back and you wait until everyone else has been served and then you go last because it's a privilege. So how does that work practically? Like, what would enable, is there a system or is it more just built into the one-to-ones that managers are having that the people are, are throwing those questions back to people? How does that play out? Well, I guess it starts from the top. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've been here 10 years now. Four years ago, uh, this might surprise you or make you laugh, but I made a vow not to make another single decision. Um, and... For me, that was super, super important. So if you're the head of making friends, which for us is marketing, the head of marketing at Ella's, you're in charge of marketing. You know, you report directly into me. We can have a chat about things. I'll give you my views. I'll give you my opinion. But at the end of the day, you're in charge of marketing. You know, it's going to be your decision. Um, And I want that to percolate through the whole business. So push it and push it and push it. Because, you know, the person directly, if someone's talking directly to say, one of our retailers, they're going to have more information than anyone else. So they should be able to actively make decisions there and then. Mm. And empowering people is a really, really powerful thing. So, so talking about Ella's Kitchen, and, and I'd love to hear like more about what works in your leadership and kind of your approach to leadership, and also some of the kind of challenges you face, because this podcast, as, as I've shared with you, is, is really about hearing like your journey. So... You know, you'll hear a CEO and sometimes we look up at CEOs like they're these ultra human beings. But, but you know, you're a human being too. And, and what's been some of the bumps in the road, some of the tough moments? Is there anything you're willing to, to talk to us about? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I'm not an ultra human being Are at you all. you not? No, I'm afraid. Oh. I'm sorry to like, <laughs> break it to you. I'm, you don't yeah, have superpowers. I really don't. Have to. Actually, well, I, I would argue everybody has a superpower. Okay. And we can come back and talk about that actually because... Mm. It's quite a cool thing that, that we did um, in lockdown around superpowers at Ella's. Um, but no, <laughs> I'm not super powerful. Um, I would, uh, I'd pick out two things. Um, firstly, the first challenge was uh, when I took over as CEO, we were bought by an American company. So an American NASDAQ listed company, so a PLC. Um, and Paul Lindley, who set the company up, who was very inspiring founder, uh, took a step back um, and eventually left the company. And I was obviously like super concerned, like lots of other people, about what's that going to mean for us, mm. for our culture, for our values, for our mission, for all the, all the stuff that we do that doesn't pay back from a financial point of view, and for our autonomy. You know, I'm big on autonomy for everyone else in the business. I quite like it myself too. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you don't really tell what to do. <laughs> no, I don't, no I, don't, I don't know where that comes from. That's another therapy session. Um, <laughs> and um, so it was a, it was a real concern. Um, and how do we protect it? Um, and, but I would say it's one of, the proud, one of the things I'm most proud of is that on any measure, since we've been bought by Haines Celestial, we've got stronger. And I would say that actually the reverse has happened. We have influenced and inspired them to change more than they have us. Mm. Um, so with regards to sustainability, with regards to B Corps, Haines Celestial Ireland certified as a B Corp. 
So I would say that, that we have been the change, I suppose, more with them than, than they have with us. And, and our culture's got stronger, our, our values have got stronger, the work that we do with our mission has got stronger. So yeah, that's the thing I, I'd be most proud of, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But that was a challenge. And the second challenge, which I still quite find very difficult to talk about, um, was something that happened just like a couple of weeks before lockdown, um, is that my managing director, who was 48, um, she died in her sleep um, in Disneyland. Uh, and she was there with her daughter. Um, and that was, you know, we, we'd worked together for... for 10 years she was a very close friend of mine um not just a work colleague we were really really good friends and that was absolutely devastating for us as a business um and you know we i almost made the terrible mistake um so i found out i was on holiday um and i found out and i had to call her father we had to try and we had to get her daughter back we had to try and get her body back which we couldn't because of because covid was just starting oh, wow um, and I almost made a terrible mistake. I, I, I got back on the on the uh, on the Sunday, and I called my senior team and I said, "What we're going to do is we'll get everyone together on the Monday, and we'll tell them together." And I spoke to a friend of mine, and he said, "You can't do that." And he said, "You're not thinking, Mark. You can't do that." You, 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 and I went, "What do you mean?" He said, "You can't tell people that sort of news altogether." He's like, "You what? What do you you know?" You, know, you can't do this, basically. And on his advice, um, we then called everybody in the business um, and got hold of everybody to tell them that just devastating news and told everyone to, you know, take a few days, don't come into work. And I came into work on the Monday and everybody came in. I get quite emotional now about it. You can, like everyone came in physically? Everyone came in physically, wow. including um, some people who were on holiday. Um, and it, it's just been absolutely devastating no funeral no memorial mm. um and it's been really really difficult to deal with and, and putting others before yourself and um so that's you know got through it as a, as a team and got through it looking after each other and um i think it's when you're on really difficult times that you really see what the culture of a business is like mm. um and do you live and breathe the values and um I couldn't be more thankful that, that I work here and have, have gone through something like this with, with the team that we've got. But it was just, it was, it was, yeah, it was it impossible. Yeah, it sounds devastating, really. Yeah, has been. And what would you say personally that you learned most through that experience? Um, I think in retrospect, um, I probably need to look after myself a bit better. <laughs> um, because, you know, we talked about leadership at the beginning and... and I always worry about everybody else and looking after everybody else and I didn't really think about myself and along with my senior team we were closest with Kat because we spent the most time with her um, and you know I don't want to make, about, make this about me but you know I've cracked two teeth I've like got all this stress that, that has come out which I didn't even really know or, or think about and I, I think in retrospect I should have um, spent more spent time thinking about myself which would have made me a better leader at the same time mm. so your own um, processing of your emotions yeah around that uh, but i have been very uh, you know open recently with the whole team about it because i thought you know i think to have connection with anybody 
um, you need to be vulnerable and you need to be honest. And mm. this idea, you know, you mentioned it before, that leaders are these sorts of superhuman beings that don't feel things um, and aren't the same as everyone else is obviously not true. And, you know, I told everybody that I was still struggling to, you know, over well over a year since, since she died and I'm still really struggling with it. And that's okay. Um, and that cracked two teeth and through, you know, Mm. clenching my jaw at night and I know that stress and I know what it is and you know have dreams and I wake up crying in the middle of the night and it's so I know what's happening I know it's me not dealing with my feelings but sometimes that can be difficult and it's amazing you know having told everybody so many people have then reached out and and like offered help and gone for walks with people and chatted about stuff so yeah I I think I should have done more at that at the beginning and not tried to be this super you know, impervious person, you know, running around looking after everyone. Mm. When, um, yeah. Mm. I guess that came with good intent too. It came with good intent, yeah. It's just something that, re- in retrospect, mm, you know, you I, spent, more time. I spent my life in leadership positions, you know, looking after other people. And I think in a crisis, I mean, it, hopefully I'll never have to go through something like it again. But um, a crisis like that, you've also got to look after yourself. Mm. You talked about the fact that you've learned or through the experience of the death of your MD, which sounds extremely tragic, and through protecting everyone else, holding everyone else, and maybe neglecting yourself a bit, that you've realised how much you need to look after yourself. So I'm wondering now, have you seen any behaviour change in yourself or... Is there anything you aspire to be to help serve your kind of day-to-day well-being needs as a leader? Yeah, I think the unless you were a key worker or, or, or um, worked on the front line in the pandemic, it has given us this big period of time where we can reflect on what's important to us. And I always have at the back of my mind, um, I don't know why, it's, it just it really impacted me. Um, there was this New Zealand nurse who um, spent years and years looking after people, after people who were dying in, in New Zealand, palliative care. And she's written a book on the regrets of the dying. And you know, the top two regrets of people who are dying, number one is, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Mm. And number two is, I wish I spent more time with my family. And she says, pretty much everybody, everybody says the same thing. Mm. Um, and I've always got that in my, my mind, because a bit like you, I've always been pushing myself and pushing myself. And I'm not quite sure why, like where it comes from. Like I'm not why... even sure it's that productive either because no. sometimes if I push myself really hard, by Friday I'm like spent, so I'm a little bit in a daze in meetings. And I don't think anyone wants a coach in a daze. Right. <laughs> in a day. So I feel like, and I'm actually thinking about carving out Wednesdays more for like me or professional development because how do I be the best person I can be when I am working so that it's more efficient and less kind of just tired all of the time yeah. <laughs> but um yeah it's, it's four day work weeks are another whole story but um but, well yeah. we can talk about those too so yeah so mm-hmm. i um so i don't know why so i'm constantly trying to ask myself now like why for whose benefit um because i love what i do um and it was really interesting so um after the first lockdown i asked everybody to write down the three things they need to do every day to get fulfillment at work. So three things, what do you need to do every day to get fulfillment? Then put it on your notice board at home so you can see them, share them with your manager, and just keep them in mind. Like these are the three things that I need to do to get fulfillment. And we compiled a list of everybody's, you know, three. And pretty much everyone in the business had two that they're the same, okay? Number one was helping someone else. Hmm. And number two was making an impact. 
um, which I thought was, was really, like, really interesting. Because you can spend many, many hours doing that, or sometimes you can do it with just one email. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the other thing we, we did, which I thought was quite cool, is I firmly believe that everybody, well, I don't believe, it's true, everybody at Ella's Kitchen has a superpower. I said, all of you have a superpower. There's a reason why um, we employed you and why you work here. What I want you to do is go away and think about what that superpower is. Like, talk to your family, talk to your friends, talk to your partner, talk to your dog. <laughs> Dogs are <laughs> um, in the most. Yeah. yeah. And write down what that superpower is. Um, and then, like a week later, I said, right, everybody's got that superpower. I want you to now use that superpower to help someone else hmm. with that superpower. And then we took it a stage further and we wrote everybody's superpowers down on a spreadsheet shared it with the whole company and said, if you need something in particular, how, why don't you have a look at what, where someone's superpower is? Like, if yeah. you need, like, I don't know, decision-making or, um, I don't know, I mean, there were so many. It was, it was amazing. It was like, have a look on here and just give someone a call and say, hey, I, I need a bit of help with your superpower's creativity or, or, mm. or bravery or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, and that went really Sharing well. superpowers sounds like pretty, pretty useful. Yeah, mm. it's pretty good. So you said we could talk about four-day work weeks. So t- yes. tell me, I'm sure, I'm sure everyone's perking their ears. <laughs> so. Actually, I've just asked my head of Keeping People Happy, who's our HR director, Catherine, to do a full review of um, the studies worldwide that have been done on four-day working weeks. Mm. So I didn't realise that Iceland, the country, has pretty much moved to a four-day working week. Interesting. So over 90% of workers are either on a four-day week or can move to a four-day week in Iceland. And they can legally do that? They can legally do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Unilever in New Zealand have moved to a four-day working week. And I've asked, uh, there are many, many companies that have moved to a four-day working week and there has been an obvious benefit for the, for the workforce um, in terms of happiness and spending more time with family and friends. Um, but actually productivity has increased. So I've asked her to look into, would it work? Would it not work? You know, what's the ideal? Do we try something? Mm. Um, so I don't know at the moment. She mm. may well come back and say, no, it's not possible. It could never work. And actually mm. those companies that have moved to it have gone back. Mm. Um, but channeling the, the, the uh, New Zealand lady that wrote that book, I'm just thinking, well, might, maybe it will. Um, and for me, Coming out, one of the changes for me personally coming out of the pandemic, you know, as a certified B Corp, we put people, planet and profit on an equal footing. And we're now legally obliged to do that because we've changed our articles of association at companies housed in the UK to commit to that. So it's a big commitment. I would say that I now put people and planet ahead of profit. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. And you've mentioned B Corp a few times and, and just briefly in... Um... <laughs> I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we can see on your website all the amazing things you'd have signed up for to get that um, accreditation. How did you find the process itself? It's a nightmare. <laughs> Tough. It's really, really difficult. Mm, that's maybe um, good, or was it unnecessarily so? I mean, it's really difficult. I, mm. I, I love Jamie Oliver talked about it, saying, you know, they have a good rummage around, you know, uh, your underwear drawer and really get stuck in. I mean, it's really, really difficult. Mm. Um, but then... It means so much more when you actually get the 80 points you need to to certify because you know that when you meet another certified B Corp or people that work for B Corps, you know, they've really made the grade. Mm. So it's kind of, it is the best of the best. It is really difficult. Um, It gets more difficult because the um, 
questions get updated and changed every three years. And I'm guessing they're going to get more aligned to things like net zero and what's happening with the environment. Um, and that's brilliant. I, m- I remember giving a talk before lockdown um, and I should engage my brain sometimes before answering things immediately. And um, somebody said, you know, I don't like the fact that you have to recertify every three years. And without answer, without thinking about it, I just shot back saying to this guy, well, I don't think anybody should be a CEO of any company if they're not up for continuous improvement. And there was silence. And I was like, oops. <laughs> but That has a bit of a slam dunk there. Yeah. Not such a bad thing. But it's just you, us Britishness, we like being polite. Yeah, well, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> it's maybe. not always the way, though. <laughs> um, but, you know, you have to research for every three years and it gets harder. So, and I think that's great. That's part of the attraction. Um, but... Yeah. Mm. So is there anything else you'd like to say to kind of close about your philosophy and leadership, anything you've experienced about your growth? Is there anything you'd like to add or or anything, maybe anything about the future of your leadership and where it might be going? Well, the, you mentioned about how the company's reaching this sort of hundred or past this hundred mark. Yeah, of, yeah. And how that affects the fact you don't know everybody. Yeah. Like, when you're thinking about how to structure the company and how you if that's true, maintain connection with people. What are you, mm. what are you thinking? What are your thoughts? What are your live thoughts on this? Well, I don't know what the future holds for me. I really, really don't know. Um, you know, it will be time at some stage for me to leave Ella's Kitchen. I'd quite like to maybe go and work in the third sector. So for charity, I think it's really interesting, without naming names, that the charities, they do such amazing work. Yet when you look at the internal values and the way that they treat their people, they're not aligned to the work that they're doing. Um, and Matthew Saad wrote a brilliant article in, in The Times talking about this. He, he was saying it happens time and time again. You know, whether it's the church or whether it's charities, these institutions that are meant to be the pinnacle of good, actually, they're not. They, they, they seem to attract... Uh, um, individuals that don't live and breathe those values so mm. i'd love to go and work for go and run a one of the big charities mm. um see how much how much good i suppose i, I could do there so um, that's about linking the external values and meaning to the way that people are treated in the culture yeah mm. yeah thanks mark i really enjoyed meeting you i enjoyed hearing the real dedication to serving others and the keenness to spread cultures that allow people to really enjoy work. It's also really helpful that Mark talks about his own journey with well-being and how that's ongoing. I'm Ruth Frenger and you've been listening to the Conscious Leaders podcast. We're showcasing the human side of great leadership so you can learn what it's really like and gain both philosophical and practical takeaways. To learn more about us and what we do to help leaders build a calm, collaborative and productive workplace, visit consciousleaders.org.uk.